Hello and welcome to That Tech Show with me, Chris Adams, and my co-host, Sam Gregory. Hello. This week's episode is a big one as we have the grandfather of microservices, Fred George, joining us. If you don't know what microservices are, then this is a great chance to learn, but in simple terms, they are how big tech firms are building software these days. It's a move away from monolithic applications to a suite of much, much smaller applications working together in order to form an answer. So we're talking thousands of small applications of 100 lines of code or less, instead of one application of millions of lines of code. And Fred was the man who pioneered this way of engineering with the Mail Online in the early 2000s, and so, of course, we'll be talking about microservices. How they came to be, what they are, when to use them, and perhaps more interestingly, when not to use them. Since starting his career in the 70s working for IBM, Fred has always been on the bleeding edge, and so we'll ask him about what that's like, and how he's maintained that position at the forefront of technology for over 40 years. Along the way, we'll also take in the other things he's invented besides microservices, and we'll talk about what he thinks is next in the future of technology. So without further ado, here's Fred George. How you doing, Fred? Not bad, not bad. Got my second coronavirus shot Wednesday, so... School. Party time. (laughs) A few more days, but yes, it's like a sense of freedom and safety. Mm, I bet. But Vegas is getting an influx of visitors like crazy right now. Is it? Cold cold winter, and yeah, we're casinos are going to 50% capacity from 35%. Mm. But it looks like people are ignoring that and just going whole hog. Wow. Do you you spend a lot of time in the casinos, Fred, or do you avoid them? I I actually spend a lot of time in them, but I don't gamble. Um, Oh, really? I I just walk through them. But just observing people. Yeah. It's, it, I, it turns out Vegas reminds me of when I lived in London. Um, oh, really? Of all, of all things. So it's the people watching is amazing in both places. <laughs> um, you have amazing theater. I mean, we got, we got six standing Cirque du Soleil shows in Vegas. Oh, um, God. And of course, all the performers come through. And then the restaurants are just unbelievable. I mean, Gordon Ramsay has six restaurants alone. Wow. Um, so... If you want entertainment, if you want great food, you want interesting people to see. Uh, I think CES is my favorite time because that's when about 200,000 geeks show up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all of a sudden, that's the awesome. town looks like, it looks like we're Silicon Valley for a week. And then, and then the, <laughs> I think it's the black hat guys come in, same time the adult video awards come in. You can tell the difference between the two. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, nice, nice. Yeah, the, the whole town transforms when these events happen, so it's, it makes it kind of interesting to see. But uh, we'd like to start off with um, uh, what's your name and where'd you come from, and then we'll <laughs> go from there if that's possible. Oh, Fred George, uh, programmer. Um, where I come from, East Coast of the United States originally is where I was born and raised, uh, and but I wrote my first code in 1968. Wow. Um, so we're not going to, we're going to skip most of the resume here. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know you had a long history with IBM. Um, I think that's how you got started, really. Well, probably where you got a, a lot of your experience, I imagine. Yeah, I was 17 years at IBM, um, which was, was actually a really informative experience. First of all, it's, it's a, I worked in the development side, so in building the operating systems. So wow. extremely bright people. Um, great mentors, great training. Um, and as a side effect I figured out later is I learned how to work with big companies and be effective. Because mm. big companies, at some level, all large companies are really bright, mm. uh, despite what we think. 
Um, but you have to understand what motivates the company. Uh, so I kind of learned how to do that in IBM. Uh, it was a bit of a shock when I started working for somebody who wasn't IBM because it turned out it, not, not everybody's IBM. <laughs> yeah, I had the same experience when I left Amazon, actually. It was, uh, again, you know, you, you move out of a company where you've got like, a comfort blanket of all sorts of things, and then you realize other places don't have those things. <laughs> Yeah, IBM was a very strong decision culture. It was easy to get decisions made. Mm. And I wound up in a consultancy where situation where it was a consensus culture. And the the positive thing was when everybody agrees, it's it's kind of easy to get things done. Um, but if it turns out everybody agreed on the wrong thing, it's almost impossible to get it to change. Mm-hmm. And I ran across deciding on the wrong thing too often. Um, so all my decision culture stuff didn't work in that consensus world. Did it take you a long time to sort of rebuild that ability to, to make decisions when you don't have necessarily the political alignment that you need? No, I'm pretty much type A. So I'm always going to get my way at some level. Um, <laughs> and so being type A, you're pretty agile, agile about how you figure out how to do this. So if this trick doesn't work, how about this trick? And then how about this trick? So Yeah, I've, I've heard you referred to as a hand grenade. Um, before um, that, that was yeah, that was a direct quote from uh, a, C, a CTO I, I worked for in the Daily Mail. I was described as the hand grenade he's throwing into development, um, which is a good job description if you can get it, um, because it, there are no rules for hand grenades. Yeah, I, I remember. I remember um, uh, meeting you briefly. I guess probably about six years ago. And uh, this was at a project in that was in London, and uh, you'd been brought in to kind of shake things up a little bit by making uh, making all of the developers and everybody around them probably feel a little bit sick that they didn't really know what on earth they were doing with their careers. Um, <laughs> and then I was in a position as a consultant where we would sort of pick the pieces up after the uh, the hand grenade had gone off. Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah, to some, to some degree, that was an engagement where I was brought in explicitly to do that. I mean, I was mm. I, my my job was be disruptive. So I was like, okay, I can I can do that. That's that's not hard. Um, Specialty. And, and and so basically, you change everything. You, you change where people sit. You change the type of desk they have. They change the programming language you're using. You change their titles. So you do everything to sort of upset the apple cart to then have it reform again. Um, because the alternative was just fire the whole group group of them and start over again somewhere else. You know, mm. take the whole thing offshore, for example. Um, um. So, so how did how did you know from from sort of leaving IBM and lose, losing that decision culture and having that way of working? How did you get from from that to being the hand grenade? Is there a whistle stop version of how you got from those two to between those two points? Um, I, even at IBM, I was a bit of a hand grenade. <laughs> Um, I, I, it's interesting because even though you consider IBM to be a relatively state organization, th- their culture was, we believe in our wild ducks. Hmm. Uh, we like our wild ducks. Um, so I, I kind of was always kind of in the, in the wild duck category. And, and my, I think my, my managers appreciated it. So they'd always throw me into a situation that was basically broken hmm. and have me fix it. Um, but what they begin to realize is after I fix things, well, fixing things is kind of fun. So I'll break it again just for the fun of it. <laughs> so they would move me to another job that was already broken and, and leave behind something that was something like you've had to do, clean up after me. Um, but it's much easier to clean up after me after I already, I already made the change necessary. Um, 
So, so for, think, exa- for exa- yeah, example, that is, I was I'm sort of the grandfather of Eclipse, the, mm. the editor. Um, so I basically brought objects into my team and in, in IBM, and we, we we started doing things in a little strange way, relatively strange, um, doing object programming. Um, built up a nice structure, sort of flattened the organization out, empowered the managers. And then they moved me out because everything was mm. working fine. And my predecessors wanted to, you know, finished it up and put clubs out the door. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, I know you as the grandfather of microservices. So there is a, there's a, there's a list of other products before that, I guess, <laughs> like Eclipse. Well, even that was, you also, if you, if you're running on a Windows system and you see the little drop downs you have, the consistent spelling, the little red X in the corner, that's some of my work back then at IBM. Wow. And uh, if you ever heard of the NetBIOS interface, uh, there's a net buoy associated with it. That's something some work I did when I was working on lands when it was brand new. Uh, Wow. So if we got, what, what else can we add to the list then, Fred? <laughs> well, you know, I, I owned the user interface architecture between Microsoft and IBM for a while. Yeah. Uh, right when we were in the OS2 days. Um, put out the first telecommunications software that let two computers talk to each other so I could log on to one computer and run an app on a different computer. Wow. Uh, so the first computer networking was some of my early projects. Oh. And what sort of, what sort of era are we talking about when when we're talking about you know getting computers to talk the, to one another? We're talking about the seventies with the uh, networking stuff. Wow. Um, LAN is kind of like the mid eighties. How does that compare to like the stuff that you're doing today? Because obviously, you know, on a daily basis, speaking of microservices particularly, we're spinning up Docker containers here, there, and everywhere, and getting them to talk to one another. And actually, frankly, you know. That can be a pain in the ass as well. So, I mean, how how was that? How 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 have things differed from doing that sort of work on a daily basis today to when you were doing that for the first time in the seventies? Well, I, I think every I think overall, I'm always kind of looking for that edge technology. Mm. Uh, so, I'm kind of the first guy that tries to says, "Let's see if I can make this thing do something interesting." Mm. Um, so that was the case of lands. I didn't invent the concept of local area network, but I put it out the door. Uh, yeah, actually, the first land versions of stuff. Um, I didn't. I didn't necessarily invent GUI interfaces, but I brought it to IBM. Yeah. And uh, how how complex was it working in that sort of? I mean, how long did these sort of projects take? Because obviously, we're talking. I mentioned the Docker containers. You know, you can do that in a couple of hours on your machine, or you know, a few minutes to be honest, depending on how you know good you are at it. How long was that taking you in the in the seventies and the eighties? Well, I, I think everything. Always took longer than I wanted it to, but you can <laughs> a, trans, a technology transformation is a twenty-five year process. Yeah, and so I'm I'm in that first five years where there's very few adopters. We've got in that early stage, you know, the brave new souls doing things. Um, so, for example, you're and you're not selling to everybody in that in that environment. You're selling to a very specific crowd, the crowd that fears that technology is competitive edge. Mm. Um, so if you're getting into objects, you're getting into object programming languages, you're probably working with a lot of the Wall Street banks, which are extremely competitive about having the best software to figure out the best reasons to do everything. Mm. So you go find those bleeding edge kids that know that technology is competitive advantage. Um, and is that still the case on Wall Street? Because I don't necessarily know if that would be the case in the city in London. Uh, it's definitely the case in Wall Street. You'll see it more in the day traders. Yeah. So day trading is where you do it, not the traditional banking, the mm. uh, you know moving money around and stuff like that. It's the day traders are always you know looking for that edge, um, and those are the ones where you see the new languages pop up. Um, 
Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. See those new things come in. You'll, you'll see the guys that have the six giant screens. Uh, these are the guys that do that work. Um, and yet where you won't see necessarily in big banks, you'll see that some of the private equity firms, uh, the ones that are investing their own money, uh, which don't have <laughs> as many rules. But yeah, you always want to find these guys who figure technologies to have advantage. Um, yeah, so when yeah. I seek out clients, that's what I'm looking for. People who figure it's not a matter of should I, you know, if I'm a hotel chain, should I buy more bacon for breakfast or should I use some tech, buy some technology? Those guys are looking for the cost benefit trade off. They don't, they aren't going to bet on anything. They're too conservative. You're looking for the guys that say, yeah. I'm opening a new hotel chain. I want people to walk through and not even stop at the registration desk. I want them to go to right to a room and swipe their swipe their credit card and walk in the door. Uh, you look for that sort of client. And and how how close are we to that? Or is that just a Fred George idea? Oh no, that we we have people that can do that now. Uh, really, a lot of motel hotel chains can do that. You know, you just kind of. Get a text message on your, on your phone when you're getting close to the hotel that says, "Oh yeah, you're here's your room number. Go walk in, go in the elevator, uh, and use your RFID card to walk in." And to your point that you mentioned before about sort of being five, you know, you're in working within that first five years. Is this technology that we expect to be commonplace in five years, or at least starting to break through in the next five years? You know, where, I, I think where are it's we at? Here, here in some degree already. The question mm. is, when does it get to be like twenty percent penetrated? That's in the, the five to fifteen year time frame. Yeah. Um, when it gets to be twenty to twenty five years, that's when everybody's going to do it, or else you get fired. <laughs> For example, you can't yeah. find you can't find a CIO today who doesn't claim they do agile. Because yes, if you, don't say, if you don't say you do agile, you can't get hired. Now, what, agile goes back to 1995, 1997. Mm. So count 25 years from there. Where are we now? Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I think we we've um, we've come across one or two um, that are still. Uh, not necessarily in that bracket, but <laughs> there's always going to be a few dinosaurs, I guess, that are going to. Yeah, always have a few dinosaurs, a few guys that still for your buggy whips are going to be a big industry. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you is because I've seen I've seen a lot of your talks, and um, the you tend to talk a little bit about where well, you talk a lot about microservices, obviously, and we'll get to that um, in a bit more detail. But you also took a lot talk a lot about um, processes and methodologies, and uh, you know having started in waterfall and moved into agile, and then there's there's some things beyond that that I'll let you talk about, but. Um, where do you, where does your time tend to split? What are you most passionate about? Is it the technology or is it the process? And how do those things work together for you? I, I think I'm most passionate about getting code out the door. Mm. So I'm looking for, I go walk into a client, I'm trying to figure out what's, what's it going to keep me from getting the code out the door. Sometimes it's going to be process. Uh, sometimes it's going to be technology. Uh, sometimes it's just going to be business attitudes. Mm. Uh, how does the business treat treat the treat the system. They treat the programmers as a giant spreadsheet um, that they can just play with. Um, so you're kind of looking, I'm looking for what's going to keep me from being successful. Um, hmm. and, and because of my sort of broad background, from all the way from lots of management at IBM and management training there, a business degree, as well as obviously some technology background. And, and I, I now run, a, run an organization of over 200 programmers at IBM. So I run large organizations. So I'm walking in sort of with no biases about what needs to be done, but with an eye to what I can do. And there's lots of possibilities. And so how do you, how do you decide where you're going to go first? How do you find what, what the bottleneck is? 
Uh, it's usually within a couple of few minutes, actually usually within a few hours of showing up with a client and having that mm. first conversation. Um, and you always want to kind of start with the person who's spending the money mm. and figure out what are they trying to accomplish? Because what the IT manager says and what the sponsor says, they're sometimes radically different. Um, and so is it always... Um... Is it always one thing or is it always a combination of those three that you have to change in an organization to make it? You're, you're always going to be touching all three. It's just a matter of to what extent you need to hammer on all three. When, when I walked into some of my engagements in Norway, um, turns out the talent level was fabulous. The, 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 team, the people they had were motivated. Uh, they were very strong technically. They knew how to work together. Hmm. All that collaboration stuff. No, I didn't need to do any work there. That was already done. Um, so my focus was on process, which they had not. So I, I put the process in place. Um, they were already were using Kotlin as their language. So that was really good. But they weren't using Kotlin as an object language. They were using Kotlin as COBOL. Right. Okay. So first of all, you have to teach them what, what Kotlin as an object language looks like. So what do ob- objects look like? Um, and it turned out it was a very traditional application. So we didn't need microservices. And they were like, we need microservices. No, no, you don't. You're mm. a very traditional application. Uh, you have a set of rules you're trying to implement. It's not. It's nothing fuzzy about this problem. I yeah. was going to ask you about that because the, what, the latest talk that I've seen you do is on um, don't do microservices or do, why you don't use microservices. And obviously, for the man who's known as being the grandfather of microservices, could you tell us a little bit more on on the, on this show particularly um, why you don't use microservices in certain circumstances? Um, I guess my favorite model is the Kinevin model from Dave Snowden. Um, which is a model of how you classify problems. Right. Um, and you have to sort of look at problems and decide whether they're very traditional. In other words, it's, it's the rules associated with what the answer has to be. Like, this is the way trades have to be settled. This is the way bank balances are calculated. This is how salary is done. This is how you get tax, calculate your tax rates. Those are very traditional applications versus ones that I now call fuzzy, which are problems that don't have precise answers. Like, which stock should I buy? Uh, should I loan you money? Um, is this a fraudulent transaction? Uh, these are fuzzy problems. So it turns out for fuzzy problems, you have competitive advantage in that space if you're able to try ideas out aggressively. Hmm. So the faster I can try something out, the better off am I often in a fuzzy environment. So if I'm solving a fuzzy problem, I want to be able to have a loosely coupled system because I want to be able to write it, put something out there that doesn't necessarily impact anything else I've done just to try an idea out. I don't want to have to sort of schedule it, think about it, make sure it doesn't impact anybody else, you know, do a three-month dance or six-month dance to sort of get it out the door. Mm-hmm. I want to try something in minutes. Um, and again, you sort of look at various environments like day traders. This is their world. Uh, there are a giant fuzzy problem. Uh, and they have competitive advantage if they can put the little things out all the time, not sort of wait for the big IT guys to say, now's, now's the time for a new shipment. And that, so it's in those fuzzy problems, that's the, that's the place to use microservices. Yeah, because microservices yeah. right now is, are hard. It's, it's thinking about a loosely coupled system when you've been used to doing step one, step two, step three, and step four, and now it's about let's do all four steps in parallel. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, we can't get our heads around that because we haven't been trained to think that way. Uh, it's not how we get business requirements from our, from our customer. He says, this is how you do it. Here's the steps we do. Here's our checklist. Uh, it's very laid out. And it has to be a fuzzy problem. That checklist is pretty much useless. Mm. And he doesn't, and the business guy doesn't understand that. He doesn't understand he's in a fuzzy problem. He's looking for precise answers. 
but nevertheless, you want to be fuzzy. But microservices is hard to get your head around as a developer. So mm. don't, I recommend don't do that unless you're experienced in doing it already. I can yeah. solve traditional problems with microservices. Uh, that's very doable, but you don't want to do that unless you have experience in microservices. Because there is quite a lot of setup work to get that working as an organization. Having built a few microservices architectures myself, it is um, a big learning curve for developers who've not done it before. Oh, yeah, huge. I, and I, I completely underestimated that originally. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So, and is this from, from the mail online or from before that? Oh, well before that. I mean, my first microservice project was in 2005. Right. Uh, when I was doing some work for one of the big manufacturing firms in the U.S., uh, and and basically, I was I had to play with the concept of services and some engagements I had in China. I uh, hung with, hung with some of the some of the great mentors in that space, and we were kind of always asking the question, "Well, how big is a service?" And I was like, "Okay, well, here's a chance to play. Let me make a service really small." Um, and so I I did that, and we had a very successful project. We had a, a project that was estimated to take eighteen months. Mm. We delivered it in nine weeks. Wow, that is fast <laughs> in comparison to the, to the original estimate. Yeah, and and, and so yeah, and so I, at one level it was wildly successful, but at, when I rolled off the project, it it kind of stopped. It, they stopped building bigger and bigger services. Uh-huh. Uh, they stopped focusing on building small services. It was easier just to build bigger ones. Yeah. So at this time, we're, we're what, 2005, what language are we talking in and how big are we talking the services? We, we were writing Java and we were writing services that were probably a couple of hundred lines of code. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this was what I call a pinball architecture. We were basically trying to fill in an information gap. So we had a this sort of record of information we needed to collect. And so you could figure out one piece of information if you had two other pieces, but I didn't have one of those other pieces. Well, I, in order to get that piece, I had to get the other information from somewhere else. Hmm. So we built little services that would take two pieces of information and generate the third. And so we basically took this little message and we ping-ponged it around the services trying to fill it in. If mm. it's missing something, you send it to somebody who helped help you out. Well, if he couldn't help you out, he sent it to somebody who could help you out. And so what was the inspiration for this? Was it actually a pinball machine? <laughs> um, no, but it was, it was kind of a, the best metaphor for it when you got there. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it was a matter of, um, just trying to break things down into very small classes. So remember, I'm, I'm object trained. I, sure. I, was, I was trained in objects from about 1986, 1987. Uh, and so we, we got to this, and we were, I was trained in talk. So we're all about very, very tiny classes that are mm. very, very you know, single responsibility classes. So I put that into my, my microservices. Let's, let's make every service do one thing. If you describe a service or use the word and, it must be two services, break it apart. I see. That makes sense. So in terms of how you were getting these services to talk to one another, there, there's this, obviously there's several ways to implement services and get these services to talk to one another, right? You know, you could have it via an API, uh, you could have it via events, and you could have it via service discovery. Now, I know that this has been quite a point of contention in terms of what is the best microservices architecture, um, and I know which camp you fall into, but I'd like you to explain that to us to, to us uh, on the call. Um, where where did you start out, and did you start out with that straight away? And you know, has your has your theory about how you do this changed over time? Yeah, my theory has changed. I, I think okay. we go back to the to the uh, pinball, my pinball architecture. Um, mm-hmm. Every, every service knew which other service to go to to get, get its piece of information. Okay. So it's kind of like every service was kind of registered as being the service that knows how to 
to get get you this piece of information. Um, and it turned out that you know that created you know it, obviously it solved the problem very nicely. Um, and there's a lot of other things about that project that went extremely well. Um, and again, I, I had a had an absolute stellar team. I had the guy who sort of created the the concept of, of build processes. You know. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I had probably one of the finest programmers I'd ever worked with. He rejoined me on that team. So it, it was not your average team. This was this was you know a team of superstars. Um, mm. But that that being said, um, we did run across some problems. Like all of a sudden, we drop a message. We drop this ball into the pinball machine, and it wouldn't come out. Mm. And sometimes it was just running around and around in circles because we had an infinite loop that we didn't realize. And sometimes the ball would just kind of disappear. <laughs> and so uh, we began to worry about, about how do you detect these other situations? So one of the problems about a loosely coupled system is when things go wrong, you don't have a lot of clues about what went wrong. Mm. So I, I began searching for other architectures that help us address that. Um, so I was, in, when I was in London working with a group. Um, this was the early days of Kafka showing up. And some mm. of my guys got into the Kafka bus and not, I'm looking at event bus and I'm like, wow, this is kind of cool because it's a permanent history of everything that went on. And if you have a permanent history of everything that went on, when something goes wrong, I can go back and reconstruct it. Mm. And in fact, to some degree, you think about an event bus. Um, well, in a traditional system, when I'm trying to debug a problem and I got lots of components that are working in various ways, the first thing I do is reconstruct the timeline of what went wrong. Mm. So you're pulling logs from here, you're pulling logs from there, you're trying to rebuild that timeline of what works. If you're building on an event bus, you have the timeline already. That work's done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially if you use an event bus, as I recommend that you have put everything on the event bus, make it a rapids. Don't mm. try to segregate it because that means you have to put it together again and put the timeline together again. Skip that step, put everything on the same event bus. Because if everything is on the same event bus, debugging is a dream. How does your because you have a concept obviously of using several event buses? So how how does that if how if you've got that approach of putting everything on the main event bus? How does that work with the additional buses that are slower moving? But to some degree, as long as they pull it, they only pull if you, as long as you only publish to the rapids, the, the key event bus, and you can pull off to some event buses all you want to. Mm. But there's nobody who says the key event bus doesn't have something on it, right? And the other thing that's driving this, and again, I, I credit some of my right colleagues in London about this, was that we, we borrowed this concept from Google. that says, don't worry about who may need the information, collect it anyway. And <laughs> that's so, Google's whole, whole company policy, I think, that not it? <laughs> yeah, and it, and it turned out it, it served them extremely well. And, yeah. and so to some degree, the Kafka bus allowed us to do that. So as long as we put everything on the same event bus, I can now write myself a little application that pulls from two radically different things. Here's some weather information here is some sales information i can see if the weather and the sales information influence each other i can write a little service that does that analysis but i don't have to go to this to each of these two groups and negotiate a new api all the data is already there for me to try this mm. so now i can try things now i'm into experimentation so i want to organize myself to experiment to allow experimentation so going back to your point about how your trouble of getting microservices going First of all, you need to be able to deploy rapidly mm. because you know deploying, developing things really quickly, and then waiting for three months to deploy them is not rapid response. Absolutely. So I think most good clients that I, that I know have been successful start out by saying we're going to do continuous deployment. Let's get that fixed. 
So let's rest control from this IT group, um, the, de the deployment guys, the dev guys, the ops guys, and, and make it make the DevOps happen. And so do what it takes to get that, whether it's, and a lot of that's gonna be political. Um, some of it's gonna be technical. Uh, and certainly some of it's gonna be uh, training, of, training of developers to let them actually do deployments and feel comfortable doing that sort of stuff. Yeah, so I've got. I mean, there's several questions. I could several routes I could go in off the, off this, I guess. But in terms of um, you know actually getting continuous delivery into places, uh, that in my experience, that's been one of the hardest things to sell people on. Um, would you agree, or have you found a better way of telling people how to do that? <laughs> no, I, in general, I, I probably don't want to open a client that doesn't hasn't already agreed to that. Really? Okay. Because they're not ready for my stuff. I mean, for, if they're not ready for that, yeah. Okay. Certainly not ready for my microservices version of stuff. I, I can do traditional applications in more traditional shops, hmm. but uh, no, not 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 the microservices. And and so in terms of the uh, the developer then, because this is another uh, another thing I want to ask you about in terms of getting the developer more familiar with continuous delivery and some of the other aspects, you know, that not just writing in a particular language, knocking out a service, knocking out an application, but understanding how Kafka works, understanding how to debug things when you're using Kafka. Um, this starts to lead us in the direction of a full stack developer. Is this something that, um, how have you seen that evolve over the last sort of 20 years, I guess? I've always been a fan of, of, of a programmer who doesn't put any adjectives in front of their name. Sure. <laughs> so is that just a developer then? <laughs> just a developer. Um, yeah. You know, it's, you just don't want to be, you want to hire somebody who says I'm a Java developer or I'm a, I'm a lead Java developer. I mean, the more adjectives you put in front of them, the more suspicious I get. <laughs> um, so you want to be able to bring people on board who, who have a couple of traits. And so the two traits I'm always looking for when I hire somebody is I want somebody who is a self-learner. So show me your GitHub account. Tell me what you know, open source you participate in. Uh, tell me what languages you're playing with. So show me that you're a self-learner because we're in a field that requires always learning. The second thing is show me you like delivering. Show me that you have a passion for getting code out the door. It's not just the technology. You want to get, you want to ship things. Because you have those two traits, I can teach you all the rest. Mm. So are we looking for a polyglot here, someone who knows all the languages or someone who is just happy to pick up a language and do something? More, more of the latter, but hmm. to some degree, if I have like 60% of my team is polyskilled, as I like to call it. Yeah, Somebody okay. who can do more than, take more than one role in. But at least I can probably optimize my team to whatever the problem is today. Yeah. Okay. Um, so going back to that, the, um, uh, the, the Kafka side of things, Obviously, we talked about there being several different ways of uh, of implementing stuff. Is the community in microservices um, solidifying on one way of implementing them or not? Is this is this still a bone of contention? I think it's still a great area of experimentation. Right. Okay. When, when somebody says they're a microservices expert, I say you, you're just lying. There, there is no <laughs> such thing. It's just too new of a technology to say we actually have we actually have good knowledge of this. Mm. Uh, I think we're getting to the point where we could probably say for a certain class of applications, these sort of techniques work very well. And if I go into a day trading atmosphere where you have lots of events streaming in all the time, uh, a bus-oriented architecture is probably the right way to go. And you mm. know, I don't think you get much debate about that. But in a lot of other spaces where we're getting to move into other fuzzy areas, um, and again, it's sort of all, all the inference engines and AI stuff where it comes back. 
uh, how all that stuff fits in, we don't know yet. So just in terms of that, in understanding that microservices architecture on a, on a big scale, do you ever introduce any element of workflow to that as well? Or, you know, how do you, because there's, there's a number of things popping up around the internet about how you get microservices coordinating with one another. Obviously, even with Kafka in place, there's certain companies introducing an element of workflow. What's your thoughts on that? Well, again, nobody has a lot of experience in this space. But so the trend I have seen when I've done microservices that are sort of event bus based is the little, the little communities of microservices that form. Hmm. There's a set of community, a little set of microservices that work really closely together and then reach some overall conclusion that they pass on to another cluster of microservices. Sure. And that these services kind of cluster very nicely in the same way that modules tend to cluster in traditional systems. That there's a natural clustering of these problems that occurs. So it's not that every service needs to know about every other service, no more than every other, every other API needs to know about every other function API in the entire system in a million lines of code. Uh, there, there's modules that form, and there's, and there's sort of levels of encapsulation of this that occur. So in my world, I like to take a team and say, okay, you're responsible for this level of functionality, and you can, you're can you going to implement this in microservices. And it may be 20, maybe 50 microservices. But you guys own these services. Uh, you can change any of these services you want to whenever you want to. If you want to change the message formats among these services, it's all, you, it's all your world to do that. But one of the things you need to define is what's that message that you're going to tell the rest of the world about hmm. that they're going to trigger on. And that one you need to sit down and probably fix, fix in concrete a little more. That becomes a little less flexible. And so when you've got these clusters of services, then is that where the, the rapids, rivers and ponds analogy comes in that, you know, do they cluster around a smaller river or a smaller pond? They tend to cluster around rivers. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, ponds, ponds tend to be my, my uh, acknowledgement that it, entities are important. Hmm. It isn't nice to know what your current address is, uh, but that's pond stuff. Um, and, and by the way, SQL is a great place for, it's great technology for ponds. Right, okay. Basically, what you want to do with a pond is build reports. And SQL and reports get along really, really well. Yeah, so I was going to ask you where, where you go with databases, actually, and what your what is your approach to implementing databases within microservices? Well, I, I think every, every micro, since every microservice is completely a world of its own, uh, every microservice, if it needs persistent data, gets, gets to make its own choice. Mm. And a lot of times, all you're doing is basically refer, pulling reference information together. So you're getting a feed from somebody that maybe it's the uh, frequent renter status, for example. Well, that's something you're pulling out of the data warehouse every night. Um, and so you're just matching up some sort of employer, you know, customer ID to some level of status. Mm-hmm. So that's a little straightforward table. A key value store is all you need. I don't need a big relational database. Thank you very much. So I can make that choice with my little microservice. But I don't want to throw SQL out either because, you know, if, if my job is to build reports, um, my database probably should be SQL. Mm-hmm. Because that performs extremely well for that. But the nice thing is just because I need a transactional database somewhere, doesn't force everybody to have to use Oracle and all their services. It doesn't have to be one database fits all. And sometimes you get the argument that says, well, but I want to be able to back these things up. I say, I don't need a backup for the key value store for frequent renters. I can pull, I can just pull off the data warehouse again. I don't need you mm-hmm. to save my database. So sometimes they don't, you know, you get this blanket answer. I gotta, I gotta have, I gotta save all my database permanently, because that's the rule. Well, anytime you use the word rule, I'm, I, get, I get a little gleam in my eyes because now 
now here's something I can change. Here's his chaos. Because <laughs> uh, you don't know the real answer. Obviously, you think there's a rule. <laughs> That's not the real reason. Well, going going into those um, into those rules side of things, um, in terms of that process side, you've been uh, you've been known for programmer anarchy as a uh, as a process. Um, how tell us about programmer anarchy and what what does that mean in comparison to agile? So so first of all, programmer anarchy was basically a marketing term, right? So they slapped <laughs> onto our process to, to sort of gain attention, and, and it seemed to work really well. Um, but what it really reflects is self-organizing teams. That's what we're really trying to say, is that the team itself knows how to organize itself. So it turns out we were working in fuzzy domains. And so we were looking for a high degree of experimentation. We were having this clustering of microservices approach sort of working for us at this time. Um, in fact, I would say that that, te- that team basically discovered this clustering phenomenon themselves. Right. So it turned out I don't need a manager in, in a fuzzy environment. When the team knows what they're trying to accomplish at a gross level, some KPI they're trying to meet, you don't really need a manager to sort of tell you what the KPI is because it's well known and we're measuring it on a daily basis. But because it's a fuzzy problem, there are no experts. So that you, your job is not to tell me what the requirements are because you can't tell me. It's a fuzzy <laughs> problem. You can't tell me how it's supposed to work because you don't know either. That's the nature of a fuzzy problem. Mm. You, can't, you can't tell me what will guarantee somebody will pay the loan back. You can't guarantee me that this is always going to detect fraudulent transactions. There's no guarantees there. So when you decide that you don't, there are no experts, and all of a sudden the business analysts die, die out. And when you tell me there's, there's nothing that you can tell me to manage my time in terms of innovation and how fast I should try ideas out, manager's role goes away. And so you, and if you're actually developing and pushing code out as fast as we are, you don't have a dedicated QA team. You're, you're testing your code yourself. You're putting it into, into very you know, user-friendly, deployment-friendly environments that are self-monitoring. Mm. So this dedicated QA team, this idea that we have to roll this thing out in stages, that goes away as well. So when you start eliminating those roles, you wind up with having all this resource that you can apply to programmers. So instead of having you know, five programmers and five people to make sure the programmers do the right things by feeding them the right requirements, I'm in a world where I can have 10 programmers. And 10 programmers can run more experiments than five programmers can run. Even if the half the experiments fail, you're way ahead of the game. So in this instance, you're clustering around problems, I guess, rather than clustering around domains. Is that is that right? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Because you're trying to solve something. And that's why I like people who like to deliver solutions. Um, you want bragging rights to go to the people who come in and say, look how many things I sold yesterday with my clever change. When your programmers <laughs> are coming in and saying that to show off with their colleagues, you've won. How how difficult is it to, to get an organization to adopt this approach? Because I, I don't imagine that you're going into organizations that already have this approach. This has got to be something you've, you're selling to people. Well, it, it turns out it's not hard for the developers. Developers will play whatever game you give them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, that, wasn't, that wasn't the thing, the people I, were trying to, I was trying to convince. <laughs> right. So, so it's not hard for the programmers to get excited about business metrics if you tell them that's the game you want them to play. Mm. Run a few cycles of that, and all of a sudden you're showing the business guys what these programmers are coming up with. And they're like, well, and literally I had this happen. They're like, how do they come up with this idea? And I'm saying they're programmers, they're problem solvers. This is what they do for a living, is solve, is figuring out clever algorithms. 
We just told them what your problem is. And now they're motivated. And so I suppose in that case, in in the case that they've brought you in to solve this problem, um, they've already created the space to say, look, Fred is going to come in and try some stuff for us. And that's one of your solutions, I presume. How would somebody who wants to implement a Fred George solution go about doing that in your in your opinion? Well, I think your first thing is you got to make sure you can you have access to sort of the high level executive who's paying the bills. Because mm. if you can't get to see this guy really understand what the motivation is, uh, you're in trouble. The other thing is you got to tell him what you're going to be doing, that you're going to be making a organizational transformation. You're not talking about Agile. You're not talking about TDD. You're not talking about pair programming. You're talking about organizational transformation. Mm-hmm. You're trying to get the organization to a point where they can try an idea out aggressively with minimal consequences if it turns out to be a bad idea, making them more competitive. And you're going to be creating some, basically some social chaos in this process. Are they okay with this? Because if you can't have that conversation with that executive and get him mm-hmm. to nod his head. You may succeed in the short term. You will. Fired, be fired in the long term. <laughs> and if they're going to give you the space to do this, how how long in your experience do you need to be able to show uh, enough of a win that you can then carry on? Two months. Two months? Yep. That, that's a lot shorter than I thought you were going to say. <laughs> well, I was going to say two weeks because most of the time I can get, get in two weeks, but I give myself a good little contingency and say two months. Uh, right. Okay. Okay. Uh, I can have a significant impact in the team itself within two weeks. And I suppose uh, that depends on the size of the team that you're going to be taking on in that well, case. Well, obviously, I will start with a small team because that's the first mistake you make is if you start with 50 people uh, and try to convince them that something's different, you need to start with four. Mm. And we got these four people on board. You can bring in another four to pair with those guys. And basically, you can probably you know, basically double the team size every two months. Okay. Which doesn't take you long to go through, get to 50 people. Yeah, because that's another thing as well that, you know, we, we've talked with a few startup owners on this show and, um, you know, we talk about how you scale a team pretty quickly. Um, in terms of scaling a startup, is that the same approach that you would take? Because most of the stuff that, you know, we've talked about so far is doing this in an enterprise. I think you do it with a startup as well. Mm. Uh, startups tend to be more aggressive about willing to change and try technology. And, and frankly, startups are basically almost always full stack developers. Yeah. They're guys who are thinking about the bigger picture and their options and, you know, um, marketing success and how the marketing works and UI and development and backend security. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're full stack developers to start with. So you're starting out in a great spot. And, and they're also willing to pivot. So they're, that's where you're trying to figure out which, what's actually going to make you the money, what, what idea actually does work. And so they're all about experimentation to start with. The key is to make sure you stay in that experimentation world. Mm. Uh, so one of the things we did at a startup in London, the first one I worked in in London, this startup, um, we, I started out there were 35 people and we had one full-time manager who was basically doing management full-time. Uh, we grew to 320 people. We had two full-time managers. Wow. And how, how long did it take you to get to 320? Uh, I would say we grew that to four years, from 35 to 320 in four years. And was that the right pace? Could you have gone faster? Could, should you have gone slower? I think we probably went as fast as we possibly have gone. Yeah. Um, I think we could have, we, it's possible we could have gone faster, but we were very reluctant to take any outside capital. So we were, we were basically 
spending our own money. So it's more of a capital concern rather than a because the, the the thing I'm I'm curious well, we about is we were doubling revenue. We were doubling revenue every eight to twelve months. Yeah, yeah. We we were printing money. Frankly, I mean, we had fifty <laughs> people. We had we, we had fifty people. We made fifty million pounds that year. Wow. Well, yeah. we all need to find out what 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 <laughs> we all need to figure out what project is doing that for us. I mean, that's definitely a goal that everybody has to try and achieve at some point. Um, yeah, so so there are a lot of unique things I learned about that environment that played in a program anarchy. Like, I, you know, walking yeah. into that environment, um, I was a very traditional agile thinker. We had, you know, you know, card walls. We had, you know, some role for business analysts, some role for testing. Um, but walking into that environment, walking, watching how successful they were, I realized a lot of these roles are unnecessary, primarily because we were in a fuzzy problem domain. Mm. So that's where I saw program anarchy and working before I actually named it. It wasn't something we we decided we were going to build. It's something we observed. I see. So it's something that you sort of, um, I guess, you sort of learning as you're going along. Your you you have an open mind clearly in the way you approach these things. So you're um, is that where inspect and adapt sort of comes in for you, but on a on a minute by minute basis. <laughs> Basically, I mean, I'm, that's why I tend to be in bleeding edge technology because I know that's going to you know feed into other other interesting things as well. Whether it's be processing, uh, how you how you approach problems, how you deliver solutions, um, new architectures, new 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 technologies tend to drive that. Um, so I was going to ask you about being on the bleeding edge because you are obviously always on the bleeding edge. So how often do you hit blockers with the bleeding edge? Well, basically, I, I got to make sure I'm re- reinventing myself at least every five years. Okay, because <laughs> otherwise I'll miss the next train that's coming along. Um, right. And to some degree, you always kind of look at what the next train is. For instance, you know, right now I'm I'm not in containers at all. Containers are kind of dead in my world. Okay, um, so where 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 should we all be looking, Fred? Where are we going now? Serverless. Serverless. Okay, so I have functions. Because I don't. Why should I worry about Kubernetes and Docker and all this other stuff when I just have to put my code out there and let it figure out how to scale itself? Okay, so functions everywhere. That's where we're going. Yeah. Why not? Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, Lambda seems seem to be the right way to go. Um, and so, you know, when you're talking about, okay, functions is where we, where we should all be heading and we should give up on containers. Um, <laughs> if, how, how big are we talking in terms of our services now using Lambda? Because we were talking about Java and a couple of hundred lines of code. Um, where are we now? Well, I, I, I would say uh, for me, I'm in the same size. I'm still talking about, I'm still talking about servers, okay. servers in that same size. It's just right. they're, they're, they're purely functional services now. Um, and you, and you want to pick a bus, you know, Kafka, unfortunately, is kind of like first generation web technology. Um, uh, you want to pick a bus that kind of has, has the auto scaling built into it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you sort of pick those technologies, yeah, I, I think you, you build great systems on that basis. The other thing I'm looking at in terms of sort of next five year trains is, is um, virtual reality. Okay, cool. Well, let's do virtual reality then. Tell us more about that. So, so. To sort of go back, I was I was part of the generation that went from green screens to GUI interfaces. So mm-hmm. I, I was I I have shepherded that transaction transaction through. Because um, I remember arguing at IBM, it's like, well, what's wrong with my green screen? You know, I can I can only do one thing at a time. Why would I want multiple windows? And you have to say, well, look, you can have your email up and your calendar at the same time. You know, you can do some of the things like this. And then you're you get into lands. Well, why do I need anything more than a text feed? Because I just start putting text on my screen. Well, maybe you'd like to have audio on your computer. Maybe you'd like to have video on your computer. I mean, I'm making these things up in 1985. 
yeah, and try to explain yeah. why you want to land. Um, so one of the things I observed was the first GUIs that came out, first, you know, people are using Windows, basically would take the entire screen and show you exactly what would be on the green screen. Now it's in color. <laughs> there was no concept of having multiple windows. Because why would you it's want that? <laughs> it took quite a while for people to understand that when you got enough real estate, you want to have multiple windows up. You don't mm. really want to. And again, browsers were through the same thing. Every browser screen was like, I got to have a whole window. I can't have multiple panes in my browser. That would be that would be wrong. Um, well, I remember tabs they, being revolutionary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, so now you go into VR. So now we're into a technology that's three-dimensional. Mm. And the first thing you see is every every bottle of the VR the layouts are here's a giant screen that's 360 degrees, but it's a set of screens. It's not taking advantage of the motion. It's taking advantage of the fact that I can travel through this space. It's not I should be moving through this space, and I hear something around behind me. I turn my head, and there's my my Twitter feed, and something's happening on Twitter. Uh, I'm not taking advantage of the fact that the UI experience associated with VR needs to be a 3D reality experience. And all you're seeing right now is 2D. So how how uh, how far away do you think we are before this stuff starts to take off? Because I mean, uh, you know, we do a new section at the front of this show, and we've just recently covered. Google killing off Google Cardboard. Uh, we've covered uh, Microsoft Ignite conference where they basically repackaged a load of VR stuff and sold it as a different product. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of development, except that we're all getting a little bit excited about what Apple might do. So what what direction do you think it's going to go in and what steps are we going to see over the next few years? Well, I think you'll see business being, of course, the, the place that can afford the high-end high end headsets and the software development for it. Um, so I think you're going to basically see, again, people like day traders putting the VR headsets on to look at all the data trends mm. uh, they can look at. And again, navigate through that space, looking for what's going on, hearing noises. So using sound and stuff like that effectively, 3D sound, to sort of say what's going on. You know, here's a noise over here. Oh, that's, you know, AT&T is trading like crazy right now. What the hell is going on? Uh, so this would become like a heads up display for us to be able to take in more information, I guess. Yes. Because basically, to some degree, we're still we have 3D vision. Uh, we just still live, still live in mostly a 2D world. I mean, we walk on the ground. We don't fly. Um, Yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yes. So, so unless you have to be, a, I guess I've seen gymnasts being amazingly, amazingly 3D, more 3D people. Uh, yes. So scuba, divers, scuba divers live in a 3D world. But the rest of us are basically 2D world with 3D vision. Um, mm. Well, we, we aren't using the 3D vision yet. So with the onset of the uh, the pandemic, everybody's moved uh, to almost fully remote working globally. Does this, uh, I was going to ask you before, you know, do you see VR being a whole load of people sat in an office with headsets, but presumably now they'd all be sat at home at headset, with headsets on? Is that is that a direction we can imagine virtual offices using VR? Uh, maybe, but I, I, don't, I don't see the winning app there yet. Um, no. It may be nice to be able to move from one Zoom room to another without having to do that. Uh, I, I try to teach one of my classes using uh, Zoom rooms because I like to break people off into pairs of work and I'll go help each pair. Um, right, yeah. In a big classroom, I can look around the classroom and I can see who's struggling and I go help them first. In Zoom rooms, I can't see that. Yeah, but I guess in, if you headed that direction, you could do that with VR, couldn't you? 
you could. I, I could so, sort of see, you know, you know if not, nothing else, I could see who's, who's actually talking to each other, who seems to be stuck. Oh. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because that gives you the opportunity to do a whole load of things that you would normally do in a physical place, but you've actually removed the barriers for the for the world then, really, which I, I was actually watching a little video earlier on about Arthur C. Clarke talking about an, a doctor being able to be in London or in Edinburgh, I think he said specifically, and working on a patient in New Zealand. Um, actually, the combination of VR and remote working, that's pretty much on the cusp of reality, I guess. Yeah, I think we're I think we're getting there. Um, I've seen you talk a bit about IoT as well. Is that still an area that you're exploring and the uh, the automated home? Yeah, I, I, it's kind of also because I think it has exceptionally interesting application of microservices because mm. um, your home is full of events. It is. You almost want like this little home event bus of your own, um, <laughs> something that can sort of say, "Here's the current temperature. Here's what your where the sunlight streaming in. Here's what." Uh, Here's what appliances are on. Here's who, who's moving around in your house right now. Here's at your front door. It's really a, just a whole chain of events. Um, and you want your IoT devices to react to that. Um, so it's kind of like a chance to sort of develop a, a, a relatively secure sort of IoT event bus in, in, inside the house. Oh. Well, you're actually describing my house exactly at this point in time because I I've been on a renovation for the last three years, and obviously you've inspired me enough, Fred, that I do have exactly that in my house. Um, it runs on a mosquito event bus, um, <laughs> so it's exactly. It, it, but that's probably not a conversation specifically for the podcast. That's something for geeking out later. Um, how far have you taken the, uh, <laughs> the this in your in your own home, and uh, how do you see that being adopted as technology? Um, that everybody has. Well, basically, it, it's kind of came to a giant standstill here because in September of 2019, I went uh, to Norway to work for a little while, and mm. and I just got back this January. Right. Okay. So there's been a little bit of a, a gap there. <laughs> more than more than a little gap. Yeah. So I, I've had a massive gap in my uh, in my sort of uh, home project stuff. Hmm. Um, uh, and now I'm just beginning to scan the technology space to see what's out there now. Because you know, 18 months ago it was one thing, and now it's like, whoa, there's there's some new stuff out there. I got to try uh, new toys. <laughs> a lot of new toys to play with. Um, yeah, it, my newest toy is my my Quest headset. So I got the Quest Two headset, yeah. and so uh, it's it's hard to tear myself away from beginning to think about playing with VR rather than play with my IoT. So I see. I, I, I'm not got a lack of toys. I also have some new, some, some grandkids are getting to the age where I could turn them loose with some custom iOS apps I might want to develop. So, oh, nice. So you're uh, you're building your own development team. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it actually worked out well. I mean, my my son's a programmer for ThoughtWorks and it's been there for like actually longer than I worked for IBM. He's been there more than that. Wow. So um, it's stuck with at least one of them. So maybe I should start the next generation off right. Uh, Starting <laughs> him off with a PC junior. Yeah. So, so what so, they yeah. all starting out? What they all starting out with these days? Then, if you if you're going to go and teach your kid to program, what what should what should you start out with? In your opinion, probably, probably an iPad with uh, with that, some of that Swift building toys on it. Mm, yeah, they're pretty cool. They're pretty cool. It, it seems to be a good place to start. Plus, you can you can ruggedize your iPad so it survives kids. <laughs> That's true. You can get those great big rubber things, can't you, to make sure that oh, it bounces. Oh, yeah, make it waterproof, snowproof, whatever it is. You can make them industrial. So either the military or children, either one. It's- 
So on, on the IoT side then, what, what do you see as making IoT in the home ubiquitous? Like to get to the stage where everybody has it or everybody wants it, what do you think would be the trigger? Well, I, I think first of all, it's going to be it's going to be installed almost automatically in new home builds. Mm-hmm. So all the new homes will basically be wired for fiber. Uh, people will worry about their access points for the Wi-Fi. They'll all they'll be built into the into your walls and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's no reason that you want to put in copper wire when you can use remote switches for everything. It's actually cheaper not to use copper wire. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I have a friend friend in California who you know built a high end house you know many years ago, but he didn't pull any copper in his house. It's all done with remote remote switches. But I think I think new houses will be wired this way, and then certainly new apartment buildings will be wired this way. And mm. I think you're probably already beginning to see that in uh, in uh, in say Hong Kong and in Singapore and places like that when they're putting new construction, and that's the way they're doing it. Do you see the retrofit happening? I mean, I'm sat in a house that's 120 years old, right? So, you know, do we do we expect that that is the sort of people are people going to be doing the retrofit? And if they are, that's going to be quite expensive because it can require new wiring and all sorts of stuff. Like, what would be the trigger that makes a customer have to have that? Well, I, I don't think it. I think first of all, it's going to be a desire first. So, it's the five mm. percent. It's going to be that early adopters. They're going to be the nerds like yourself. Yes, who are going thanks to say, for that, Fred. I'm going to take a hundred <laughs> house and do it anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I pulled a Cat Five cable in my 110 year old house in, in North in, uh, in, the, in the states when I had a house like that. Uh-huh. Um, it turns out there's going down in the in, in the crawl space beneath it. I saw two generations of telephone wiring technology <laughs> as well. So um, yeah, I think it's going to be the nerds doing it. But you can do this almost all wireless now. You can do mm-hmm. wireless hubs and wireless uh, switches and Basically, you just need power outlets that are just put the your wireless adapters in there. So it, you're going to find that people like yourself are going to be able to do that in general. Um, and then it's going to, after a while, it's going to be here's some installers that will do it for you. So we got to come in and fix your kitchen up. Or you want to fix a new bathroom up? The other guy will come in and say, "Well, you want me to do this fancy wiring for you?" Um, yeah. I, I gave my uh, my daughter and her her husband. Uh, this is my daughter who's who's nerd, but a dentist nerd, not a tech nerd. Um, put some uh, hue lights in their house so they could turn on some hue lights in the, in the baby's room and around the television. And now they're hooked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like once you have a taste of it, you can't do without it. Uh, yeah, I think it's just getting to that stage where they become properly useful because a lot of these lights where, you know, it's in the bulb. As soon as you turn it off of the wall, it's rendered useless. You can't yes. do anything with it. So, you know, it's getting to the stage where that's not the case and it's still being useful enough. But do you, um, I mean, you talk, you know, you've, you've, you've been on the bleeding edge of all of this technology over your career. Do you have any concerns for sort of this personal security aspect of this? You know, we're in a, we're in a world now where we've got all of these uh, smart speakers in our house. You know, I'm sure... You know, I, I mean, I, as, a, as a kid growing up in the 80s, I remember, um, you know, people being terrified that someone might be listening in on your telephone and your landline, you know, and now we've got we've, we've got like that that exact bug is sat on our desks, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, so that's obviously changed people's attitudes. But um, what how have you th- thought about that over the over the years? Well, you know, certainly I mean, you talk, if you see my IoT presentation, one of the things I talk about is putting it on its own land. Hmm. So let's build my own little wireless network that has all my, my devices in my house. And I'll put a, a, a 
a gateway bridge to the outside world from there. So I think it's going to be important to set up your, your own little network. Um, yeah, yeah. Secure network that way over yourselves. And again, I think once it gets to be commodity, that's what that's what will be by default. So these guys that are installing your new wireless system, as well as your new kitchen, as well as your new bathroom, these guys will install a secure, a holy, you know, secure, holy secure system. The other thing is, frankly, uh, the current generation doesn't care about privacy this way you and you and I may. Yeah. Do should they? Um, don't know. To some degree, I, I was raised. You know, I, I was in the Irish system and in London. Yeah. So just get, get get into London faster. I put myself into the you know rent, rental scan system. Uh, oh, I wasn't, okay. I didn't. That didn't bother me because I got a benefit from it. Um, I kind of go back to this, if if the Mossad wants you dead, you'll be dead. Mm. <laughs> um, well, I think this is an interesting thing when it comes to security because I think you know we probably don't necessarily need to be. As concerned as individuals, I mean, the thing is, you, you essentially on the internet, you become a commodity, right? So they're trying to stick you into a cohort so they can sell you more advertising. And so I have a, a lot of these speakers turned off because I'm sick of Facebook recommending me things that I've spoken about, you know. Um, so, but in terms of them actually coming after me as a person, I probably don't need to care about that. Would you agree with that? Oh, I, I agree. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I tend to opt out of all the, you know, targeted ad stuff myself. Um, but they have enough for I mean, they know everything about me already. <laughs> well, there's plenty of, uh, yeah, there's plenty of talks um, that everyone knows what you think, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I think there's no, no hiding that. And to some degree, again, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I kind of believe in the sunshine thing. I tend not, you know, sunshine principle, don't do anything you don't want to be shown in broad daylight. So That makes sense. Um I try to live by that. I think the more that we sort of dump privacy is, is a primary concern. Um, now, if I was QAnon, I'd care about privacy. Yes. <laughs> well, that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I'm always a little suspicious of people that are maybe trying to be overly private. Um, hmm. Suspicious is not to say it's not to say wrong, but it's a little suspicious when you're saying, what, what, what are you really trying to hide? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a few other things, a few other points that, as we've gone through this, I've I've made made notes as we've gone through, and there's a. I realise we're dump, jumping back into conversations we've already had, but there's a couple of things I don't want to let you go without uh, without finding out about. So your approach to to testing, um, you know, you you've talked about moving away from not having QA and and things like that, and I think I've heard you. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure I would be quoting you if I said um, I have heard you say that if you can't write a few lines of code and make it work, then you shouldn't be writing code in the first place. Um, <laughs> so in terms of um, in terms of testing, how is your approach to, to that taken off? And what is well, what is your approach to testing now? What do you do you use any particular tools? Um, do you do you still feel like that about QA? <laughs> I, I definitely feel that about QA. Um, some parts of the world has QA defined differently. So in India, QA is defined as being basically process wizards. Um, mm. They really are you know, really are associated with thinking about processes more than than code itself. Uh, I grew up in an environment where if you weren't smart enough to write code, then you were a tester. <laughs> mm. uh, and that those those days are gone because yeah. the testing tools themselves are programming tools, whether it's cucumber or or, or Mercury, so Mercury tools or other stuff like that, or mm -hmm. Selenium's, um, 
the program, the programming oriented tools. Um, and gen generally, in the systems we're building now, you can't really be test the, test the code unless you understand systems architecture overall. So let me see, you're an architect, you know how to write code. So what's the difference between you and a good programmer? The skill distinction is gone. Hmm. So first of all, you gotta acknowledge there's no skill distinction now between, between those two roles. So now, now it just becomes a label. Um, so I, I haven't had a QA team uh, in any, any project I've been on for the last decade. Uh, right. Now that's a little bit because I, I tend to be on bleeding edge projects, uh, but it also tends to say that in those environments, obviously you're not gonna have fast response. You, don't, you can't do continuous deployment and have a QA team. Mm. Now, what, what we discovered in London, again, I credit the team in London for discovering this. I just, I just report it. Um, one of the things we discovered is uh, we put monitoring into our event bus. So we built our event bus with testing built into the bus itself. So we're constantly sure. testing our own software on our own event bus in the live system. So it's not that we're not doing system, integra system integration testing. We're doing active monitoring of the real system the same way. And so yeah. we're probably spending just as much money, uh, just as much talented resource as we would in a QA team doing system tests. We're now doing it by deploying active tools into live environments. And so I was going to ask you about TDD and whether that is a practice that you follow as a developer, but it sounds well, like you're also building that into the, the, the deployments. Yeah, it's two levels of testing. Certainly, TDD is kind of the unit testing. I believe in TDD for unit testing for mm. lots of reasons, one of which is it, it requires me to be lazy about how much I write because <laughs> uh, I can't over-engineer things under the TDD rules. Um, was that a strange practice for you, to, for you to pick up, like learning to TDD, or is that something you've always done in a way? Well, not always, because yeah. it wasn't until you know I, I saw the – the Kent Beck and Ward Cunningham briefing about this stuff and one of the oopsless, mm. uh, even before the XP book was out, that it was like, write the test. I, I was actually in, a, in an environment we were writing in small talk mostly. And then people would write the code. And then I'd go home that night and I'd, I'd sort of review the code and write some tests for it. So I was testing it in the evening and in the evening I write tests for the code my guys wrote during the day. And then they said, write the test before you write the code. And it was like, ah, you idiot. <laughs> of course. <laughs> So it was like, an obvious. I, th it, it was an obvious thing for you. It, as it soon was as, obvious once you, yeah. I, I, having written small talk for like uh, oh almost ten years before Agile came along, uh, Agile is basically just saying this is the practice you should use with small talk. Mm. And it was once once you once you've been a small talk programmer, everything you said was like obvious. It was like why I didn't see it before is just I'm an idiot. Uh, but that was the, that's the beauty of guys like you know Ward Cunningham and Ken Beck. They see it. And they they recognize it and they can talk about it. Um, so you know, big kudos to people who realize that stuff. And and they guys like Dave Snowden that says they're fuzzy problems and they're traditional problems. Mm. And like oh, and by the way, you organize yourself differently for those two type of problems. It's like as soon as he says this, it's obvious. Yeah, absolutely. You just don't, you you have to have the first person that makes the connection. D Dave Snowden, for example, when he said that, I realized why I could not put Agile into my call center. Because there's nothing about a call center that's not that's is anywhere traditional or comp or complicated. Mm. It's, it's a simple problem. You don't need agile for simple problems because the requirements are not changing. Makes sense. Makes sense. We we've not really talked about um, front end too much. Um, are you uh, is, is micro front end something you've explored, or is that the wrong direction for us to be heading in? 
Uh, I haven't played with it. You know, obviously, with my UI background, uh, yes. I, I'm, kind of a, I'm a kind of a front-end designer from the ancient days, from the, mm. from the rich client world. And it turns out all that translated really well to the web world. And it looks like, as a little bit I've played with so far, all that translates right into the mobile world. So, so the GUI paradigm is pretty much the same on all those devices and all those technologies. I would like to see my, I'd like to have an event bus on my iPhone. Nice. I would, I would like to turn my iPhone experience into a set of UI things that are driven from an event bus. What would be the benefit of having that, do you think? Experimentation and being able to do micro deployments to that environment. Mm. Uh, so imagine, I think about my watch. My Apple watch has got this really amazing set of, uh, of sort of, I guess they call them um, notions or it's kind of their the UI elements. Um, right. I can put, I have like one, two, I have seven different UI elements on my Apple Watch and I find them all very useful. It'd be nice to mm. be able to take my iPad and put, you know, 50 of my own personal little things on there that things I care about. Um, yeah, I okay. could do that if I had an event bus and, and write little micro apps to just do exactly what I want. Yeah, I get it. That makes sense. So maybe that's another direction for the next five years then. <laughs> well, I think it's taking some of the technology we know works really well, event buses. And moving it into other other platforms. Yeah, because I must admit, you know, from having worked in microservices for a good five years now, that does feel like this. That's the thing that's missing on the on the front end. You know, we, we don't quite have that same. It feel everything feels distinctly monolithic <laughs> when you're working on microservices as the back end. Yeah, I mean, the front end guys uh, they've struggled to get into agile, obviously. Mm. Um, one of that is they're rooted in print media. A lot of them have been trained in print media, which is extremely static. Hmm. And they were trained to, you know, put your 45 levels of grayscale in there and, and make it look really good. But they haven't been trained in interacting with that. The interaction with that is you read, read, read your copy. Your eye is drawn to this point. You read that copy. Hmm. It's not about clicking and dragging and then that other stuff is not part of their education. So hence the, hence the UX guys have now emerged, people who are thinking more about the experience but may not be able to draw the prettiest icons. And now you want to center your group around the UX guys, not the UI guys. Yeah. And so now, now you think about the experience from that perspective. But even those guys are want to almost understand, they want to have all the requirements. They've been trained. Give me all the requirements. I'll come up with a great experience and we'll build the product. That's waterfall. <laughs> and so you have to tell them, I don't need, I don't need you don't need to tell me exactly the, all the flows and stuff. Just give me a hint. Give me mm. a starting point. Let's try it out and see how it looks. Let me play with it. What I really want to do is I want to take these UI guys. I want to train them how to build, use my UI building tools. I mm. want them to build their own HTML. I want them to build their own CSS. And by the way, when they get hooked into that, I want them to build their own JavaScript. Mm. Mm. And now what's happened, now they're programmers. <laughs> <laughs> and now they understand how to play with things and try things out. And now they begin to understand how I can be granular with this. So my, my first step when I run into, run into UI people is, I, first of all, I want to sit them in the team they're working with. Mm. So stop working, sit together with the UI, the other UI guys, spread yourself out. And this comes from basically one of the principles I talk about, which I picked up in grad school. And that's there's three reasons people talk to each other. One is we say have the same hobbies. You know, our kids go to the same daycare. We both are Arsenal supporters. But frankly, as a management team, you don't have any control over that. Mm -hmm. Second reason people talk to each other, they have the same manager. 
Managers tend to be people who sort of pull people together and require the conversations. The third reason, this is the guy got tenured at MIT for this. The chance of you and I communicating varies inversely with the square of distances between our chairs. <laughs> so if you and I are sitting close to each other, we're talking and we double the distance, it's one chance in four of us talking. You double it again is one chance in 16. He measured the intellectual distance of a staircase. It's 100 meters. <laughs> Square that number. You might as well be in Bangalore if he's downstairs. Yeah, I've, uh, I've experienced that. <laughs> exactly. So I don't want the UI people sitting together. Yeah. I want them sitting with the team they're working with because mm. I want communication between them and the team. I know they're going to talk to the other UI guys because it's a UI manager. So one of the first things I do in terms of seating arrangements is I change the seating arrangements in organizations to create the square distance between the chairs, minimize that for the people who I want to talk. I want the, I want the business requirements guy. I want the man, team manager. I want the customer. I want the UI guy and the developers front end and back end all sitting as close as possible to each other. And I suppose that's in the, that that's that same sort of model that Spotify defined as well, isn't it? Of having that slice yes. of a team. Yeah, it all comes from the same guys. This is Tom Allen from MIT who basically recognized this. When he was actually, this? Because I'm curious as the origins of this model. Yeah, so basically, again, a guy's name is Tom Allen. He's mm -hmm. a person emeritus now at MIT, uh, the Sloan School at MIT. And he's the one that basically came up with the square distance between the chairs. Uh, so, and he, and he, 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 measured the, he measured that over many, many studies. Um, and he has the concept of you know, gatekeepers, you know, people who information flow through, which has nothing to do with your title. Hmm. Um, what what era are we talking here, Fred? Well, I, I had the course from him in 1986. Right. His, his book came out, he had a book came out shortly thereafter about that time frame, uh, which you can still get hold of. Um, well, we'll put that on the recommended reading list on the no, on the show notes then. So, I mean, like, that's the origin of the Spotify model right there, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's the one that sort of, sort of talked about that. Obviously, it was being done because he actually studied it. I mean, people had mm. indications of this, but he's the one that kind of formalized it. Um, and, and call it out. And, and I used his techniques almost immediately after walking out of school. And every time I tried it, it worked amazing. Um, wow. So one of the last things I want to, um, I want to cover with you just because, um, I've heard you say this. And so I want to, I want to know your, your feelings on it in more detail. I've heard you say 80% of microservices implementations are wrong. So why is that? <laughs> uh, I, I, I think people say I'm going to do microservices because it's cool. Mm. And so they immediately, they draw boundaries around mostly entities. Um, so they're like, here's my customer service. Here's my order service. Here's my inventory service. These aren't, these aren't functional services. They're data services. Yeah. So they're not making any decisions. They're actually just data. You're still having some other service that's pulling information from these services and having to make the decisions. So you haven't really accomplished anything. That's just sort of service-oriented design, really, isn't it? That's domain design to, to break things up like that, I guess. You're breaking up, but you're breaking on boundaries that are basically entity-based rather than yeah. functional-based. Um, what you'd much rather do is break along functional lines. Mm. Um, so imagine that you had uh, 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 an inventory and a customer database. It's the join tables that have the interesting behavior because that's where orders come in. That's where returns associated with that. Hmm. It's, it's these join tables that have the interesting behavior. You want to build your services around the join tables. So having access to these two tables, you build your services around functions that manipulate these two tables. 
and they tend to be functions in that case. So again, most people build microservices. First of all, they're going to be thousands and thousands of lines of code. It's going to take a team of five people two months to build it. <laughs> so obviously, it's not micro in any sense of the word. Mm. Um, but they like the term. It sounds sounds efficient. Yeah, yeah. So they call it micro. So you so you kill that part of it. Um, so you have people doing that, calling microservices that aren't micro. Then you have the guys who are breaking on entity boundaries, which are going to be wrong. And it winds up having no benefit in the long run. All you're trying to do is joins across databases now. Yeah, yeah. Joins work really well inside databases, not outside databases. And that's and that's kind of why. And then you have people that are taking traditional problems and trying to solve with microservices. And so they haven't gone through the learning curve necessary to be efficient in how to do that, to handle the, you know, the pinball being lost or pinball going around in circles forever. And that brings um, us back to the fuzzy conversation about before. before. And that says, yeah, it, I don't try to bite this off unless you got a fuzzy problem. If you have a fuzzy problem, it's worth learning it. If you haven't got a fuzzy problem, now is not the time to get into microservices. Okay. I mean, thanks for your time, Fred. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I've been excited about speaking to you for quite some time. So um, uh, thank you for taking this time early morning in, uh, in Las Vegas to join us. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs>